You are listening to the SUSNET podcast by the Swedish South Asian Studies Network. Welcome to a new episode of our SUSNET podcast. After we spoke about the coronavirus situation in India in our last episode, we are going to focus on India's neighbor Nepal today. And I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Anup Subedi, who is a medical professional from Kathmandu. Thank you very much, Dr. Subedi, for being with us today and for taking the time. And I'd say rather than me giving a lengthy introduction, how about you introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about your background and also your current work on the front line? Uh, thank you so much, Hannah, for uh, having me in this program. Um, so I am an infectious diseases doctor, and um, I also have uh, some training in public health. Um, I did my training um, in public health and in uh, internal medicine and infectious diseases in uh, the United States. And for past uh, almost three years, I'm now in Nepal working in private hospital here in Kathmandu. And um, since the uh, pandemic started, uh, I've been uh, a little more vocal about um, what the country should do to prepare for the pandemic and trying to um, help people understand the challenges and uh, learn at the same time myself uh, about what's going on and how we can do better. Um, so I've been writing uh, opinion piece articles or uh, giving interviews and uh, giving some advice, trying to write some clinical guidelines uh, where uh, I can help. That's that's the kind of work I've been doing these days. Thanks a lot for this intro. And could you tell a bit more about your daily work at the hospital? And are you in direct contact with corona patients? And how does that look like? So it has uh, changed uh, significantly uh, over the last few months. Um, because I worked in a private hospital that was not a designated COVID hospital um, as according to the government's, uh, you know, uh, labeling. We did not have a lot of COVID-19 patients at the beginning. We had patients who would come with fever. And then um, if they were diagnosed of having COVID, some would choose to stay, some would choose to go to a government hospital because treatment would be free. Uh, however, the pandemic really took off in the last uh, few months. And uh, Right now, we're at a situation where all the hospital beds are filled and all the ICU beds are filled. All the Almost the ventilator capacity has been saturated. So we're really at the brim. And so no hospital is um, uh, without COVID patients. And so my typical day these days is um, I start with rounds in the hospital. I put on the PPEs, uh, you know, take them off again. And, uh, you know, it's, it's same thing. So I have like... Um, and then go to the intensive care unit, you know. So uh, I will just keep uh, be doing all that and then go to the fever clinic or the influenza-like illness clinic where we um, see all the patients who have come to the uh, outpatient setting to get evaluated with either already a diagnosis of COVID or just symptoms. And, um, and then I have a, another uh, outpatient clinic where um, there will be patients with other symptoms, not necessarily, not related to COVID. And so I'll be just uh, changing my clothes, you know, going going from one place to another all day. And that I'm there probably until eight, nine o'clock doing evening rounds again, you know. So so it's very busy. It's very hectic, uh, very stressful. And then the other part is, uh, which has really been very um, uh, difficult, is uh, telephone calls. There's so much anxiety around. If for even every patient, there is um, a lot of anxiety. The family members... 
keep calling the you know the concerned um, other do-gooders well-wishers and in nepal you don't really uh, uh, it's not uh, taken as a violation of privacy if somebody calls to ask about a patient, you know, <laughs> and then we have to be careful. <laughs> but uh, there are other doctors who are asking, hey, that person is my friend's, you know, daughter or somebody. And then and then they ask for updates. And uh, and then there will be so many calls about whether we have ICU beds or ventilators available in our hospital. And then people are just um, uh, very desperate. Uh, so so that that's the other thing. And so we keep getting calls late into the night, you know. Yeah. And what is the usual procedure when you receive patients that have been experiencing COVID symptoms when they reach the hospital? It, um, it depends. Um, there were there are a lot of situations where um, people um, may be having symptoms for eight, nine days and uh, they just um, either don't go see the doctor because they're worried uh, that it could be coronavirus. And if they have coronavirus, and uh, they're, uh, if they're uh, tenants in an apartment, the landlord may find out and may, you know, ask them to get out of there. There are other people who are in denial, scared to come to the hospital to get tested because they worry that in the hospital there is coronavirus uh, going around and they may catch the virus. Uh, and so they may have symptoms very typical of coronavirus and they keep waiting until very late um, and uh, there are some others who um, just get tested because um, somebody else um, they you know saw from 12 meters away uh, turned out to have coronavirus so it's a different spectrum but um, uh, there's we have a very uh, poor science literacy and then there are a lot of mixed messages, even in the media, in, you know, um, in social media, even on very uh, established uh, television programs. There were people who were saying coronavirus was a hoax. Um, this was a global, you know, um, uh, conspiracy by the WHO and other international agencies and countries to, you know, um, you know, to sell masks or sanitizers. You know. So, and then uh, our even our political leaders have called it a hoax, or or at least have downplayed the risks so much that um, it is um, uh, very confusing for an average person. Um, so, some people come too early, or when they don't really have any symptoms, some come very late, uh, and they need to be uh, intubated very soon. So uh, and so when they come, uh, we test them. Uh, luckily, now in my hospital, we have a lab where we can do the PCR tests. Otherwise, we would have to send to other labs. And sometimes uh, until a few months back, we were getting results almost a week later. And then um, the health workers would be at a tremendous risk also, especially because we have uh, shortage of uh, PPEs and the personal protective equipments. And then not knowing the diagnosis would make it very difficult for us to, you know, decide where to put them in the hospital, you know. Uh, so, and then there would be strain on the beds. The costs uh, are also uh, tremendously uh, raised for treatment for patients uh, because of the additional, you know, cost of uh, the uh, infection prevention issue related issues. It's, it's very challenging. Yeah, yeah, it really, it really sounds like that. You already mentioned the high level of misinformation about the coronavirus that has been circulating amongst various platforms. And I've been I've also been closely following the media coverage in Nepal regarding the pandemic. And um, I was quite surprised to see even top level politicians making claims about certain natural remedies that yeah, that are by no means scientifically proven. 
When you engage with patients and their families, how much are they influenced by such misinformation? Um, a lot. Um, so um, almost everyone is taking the you know turmeric powder soups and uh, and um, other uh, stuff that the prime minister and uh, a lot of other people have uh, you know uh, talked about um and then there are a lot of other natural remedies the ayurveda is um, based on ayurvedic uh, practice which people um use uh, and then uh, there are not only that there are lots of um almost everybody is taking lots of these vitamin combinations or or tra treatments like uh, some antibiotics or some antiparasitic medications uh, you know hydroxychloroquine or um, ivermectin or doxycycline which have no evidence um, almost everybody is taking antibiotics at least one course at home before they come to the hospital uh, which are not making any difference and these are all uh, recommended by doctors um, um, whom they have you know contacted by phone uh, so uh, it's not only a problem of um, the awareness of the public, it's also a problem of the awareness of the practicing physicians or people who have license, who have the license and who have the credibility in the public's eye about giving the right scientific information. So um, a lot of things to work on. But would you say that your medical advice and medical knowledge is generally accepted by people when you speak to them in the hospital? Um, yes, and uh, sometimes no, but mostly yes, especially the uh, relatively rich elite class, they have already contacted somebody in India, some expert in India before they come to us. And uh, so they may not agree with what we say. Uh, they may because in India it looks like everybody gets hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and, and you know, those kind of prescriptions. And, and so when in our hospital, when we have to admit, we stop all those unnecessary medications, they may not be happy with what we do, but then they, it takes a lot of communication. Um, we have to sit and explain and tell them why we don't think we don't want them to take those medications and, and some personal, you know, connections uh, before they listen to us. Um, I usually have to tell them that if I got sick, I wouldn't take those medicines. If my, parents got sick, I wouldn't give them those medications. And usually that works. Um, if evidence doesn't work, some personal communication does work at some point. Right. Maybe we can go back in time a bit. It's now the second week of October. And I think the first Corona case was detected in Nepal nearly nine months ago on the 23rd of January. Can you give us a short timeline of events or a summary of how the pandemic has been unfolding in Nepal since January? Right. So the first case uh, was, on, as you mentioned, on a person who uh, returned from Wuhan, China uh, on uh, January 9th. And then he went to the hospital here in Kathmandu uh, and then was uh, diagnosed of having um, the virus on January 23rd. We did not have a lab that was able to do a PCR for um, coronavirus um, at that time. And uh, so this sample was sent to Hong Kong. And um, but since then, uh, we um, started um, doing the tests in Nepal on uh, January 27. Um, we had our second case about a um, month and a half later um, and our first death on the 14th of May. There uh, must have been a lot of cases of local transmission before that, but the one documented as our first was on um, 
4th of April. Um, the death itself on 14th of May was also a um, case of um, un unknown source. Must be a very good proof of a community level transmission in Kathmandu Valley at that time because the person was living in Kathmandu Valley around the time she got sick before she was transferred um, to another district uh, where she died. And um, at the beginning, um, the government's response was mainly um, installing the health desks at the border checkpoints and at the mainly at the Trivan International Airport in Kathmandu. Um, there was a lot of uh, energy and time spent around the thermal scanners. Um, just um, they wouldn't work or, you know, and you know, all that. Uh, I think for about one and a half months, we were just talking about that in the news. When we already knew that thermal scanners could only detect very, very small percentage of the sick people or people who carried the virus. And um, we really did not um, ever um, have a system of uh, doing um, a proper um, grassroots level um, community contact tracing, you know, identification of patients, um, tracing them. Um, uh, you know, so that, that is a, our, one of our weakest points. Uh, regarding testing, we had a lot of difficulty at the beginning because we only had this one uh, national public health lab where we could do the, um, which had the biosafety level and the equipments to do the, and the authorization from government to do the tests. We did have other labs that could do PCR tests, but the government was not willing to authorize them to do the test. So uh, it was very difficult to get the, you know, testing capacity to um, uh, improve. Uh, most of the cases we had at the beginning were from um, people who were coming from India. So India, we have about um, maybe seven, eight million Nepalese uh, in India or, or more for as a seasonal um, workers. When India instituted lockdowns, a significant portion of them started uh, coming back to the country and entered through many um, free border checkpoints between India and Nepal in the southern part and the western part of the country. So those are far from Kathmandu and the samples had to be collected there and brought to Kathmandu and then re results to be provided and it took about three weeks, four weeks sometimes to give the results to the person. And uh, in the meantime, there were so many deaths. Uh, at the beginning, most of the you know uh, ac actual cases we had were people who had died uh, already and they got the diagnosis after the deaths. Over time, the government uh, started to feel the pressure and they uh, opened a few more um, uh, labs where the, these uh, tests could be done. Uh, there was still, uh, that was very uh, far from adequate. A lot of private labs and um, were willing and offering to, you know, do the tests. And uh, eventually the government yielded about a month and a half back. It's finally after about eight months. And um, so we now have about 50 labs um, run in different parts of the country. And the, most of the tests are carried out in these uh, labs. And um, initially the tests were done for free. The government's guidelines still say uh, tests have to be done for free for most of the cases. They have specific criteria, but that is not followed. And people are paying huge prices. Uh, and so the cost itself is an issue uh, because of the cost involved. A lot of people are not able to come to test. 
Um, so the government's other response was the nationwide lockdown that they started on 24th March, uh, soon after the second case um, was uh, identified among a person uh, in a person who returned from uh, France. Um, the lockdown lasted for um, almost three months and uh, finally was uh, discontinued on July 21st. And um, then uh, the government um, has been in this mode of, you know, starting a lockdown, shutting down everything in the whole country, uh, one order, you know, there is no, no, no fine tuning uh, anywhere. And then, uh, then opening up everything suddenly, again, there is no timeline, there is no, you know, graduality. Uh, you know. And, uh, and right now the lockdown is not there. The government has allowed everything right now. Even though, except schools and colleges, you know, or, or you know, uh, big parties or events, um, all the businesses are open, all the malls and, you know, uh, super, supermarkets are open. Uh, only the, uh, you know, cinema halls are closed and, uh, you know, some other places where people congregate, these, uh, these are closed. Um, and the issue is a financial aspect. Um, the, there are... Um, so many reports of people dying of hunger uh, or uh, just um, uh, finding it very um, difficult to make ends meet and have two meals uh, in a day and um, a lot of hardship uh, in uh, different parts of the countries. Workers who came from um, India once they instituted lockdown in India are seeing that the cases have uh, risen up very significantly in India and the threat of the, you know, getting sick in India is so much higher, but are actually now going back to India because there is so little economic opportunities and their families are going hungry. So uh, right now we are not in a lockdown mode, but the government's uh, Ministry of Health has recently said that um, it would recommend instituting another big lockdown of the whole country if the active case numbers goes to above 25,000, because that would mean that our country's health capacity has been completely saturated. And actually, we just um, um, passed that mark um, in the last two days. And um, I'm sure the numbers are at least 7, 8 or 10, 12 times higher um, than 25,000 right now. We just haven't tested enough. But at least the official numbers are now 25,000 as uh, of the active cases. So um, we may, again, enter another phase of lockdown based on that um, uh, assessment by the Ministry of Health. And then we are uh, entering the festival season soon. So that will be another, uh, another time of challenge again. Yeah, you mentioned the upcoming festival season in Nepal. I mean, we're two weeks away from Dasai, which for most Nepalese is the biggest cultural and religious festival of the year. And shortly after, two, three weeks after that, in November, there'll be Tihar or Diwali. And yeah, maybe we need to add here that in Nepal, it's very common for people who've moved to the cities for work and so on um, to travel back to their villages and hometowns to be with our families during the festival. So there's usually a lot of mobility with bus tickets being sold out for weeks and similar things. So now my question, what is going to happen this year? And has the government come up with any type of strategy to minimize the spreading of the virus during the festival season? Um, so the government does not have one um, straightforward message. That's the problem. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the tourism minister um, said that he was 
starting a plan to increase internal or uh, domestic uh, tourism um, you know right now and uh, and then ministry of health is saying uh, this is not a time to travel and it has been telling people to you know um, not travel uh, to um, other districts uh, or travel back home this year try to minimize the travel um, to prevent um, importing uh, the virus in um, different areas which have been free or we, where the pandemic may have hit before but the um, cases have been low recently. So uh, this is a big um, risk because uh, Kathmandu is uh, heavily populated. We have probably 5 million or more people in Kathmandu and a significant portion of that will be uh, normally uh, travels to um, almost all parts of the country um, to for the festivals and um, so uh, right now the uh, pandemic is concentrated in these big cities Kathmandu, Butuol, Pokhara, Biratnagar uh, um, even though the data we're here seeing every day are mostly from Kathmandu um, I'm sure um, the other cities have been similarly hit and when people start to go back to their villages from these uh, densely concentrated cities uh, there will be a big surge in the number of cases especially in places where there is very little infrastructure uh, for healthcare and um, there may not be even enough oxygen cylinders um, uh, forget about other things so um, yes everybody seems to be concerned the government people seem to be worried uh, especially those in the Ministry of Health, but uh, they don't really have a strategy. Um, they have um, given some guidelines, for example, to um, public buses, public transports, um, regarding uh, you know social distancing in the buses, um, hand sanitizers before, after, you know, all those things. But um, as if you see the you know, how the buses have been running in Kathmandu and in other places right now, there, none of that is followed. I mean buses are densely crowded so even if I uh, want to go to my village I get a checked with a PCR before I go back there's a very huge risk that I may actually catch the virus in the bus on uh, route to the village um, so th there's a pressure on the government to try to come up with a strategy try to at least you know uh, maybe restrict inter-district travel or inter-regional travel but um, I don't know what they are planning uh, specifically yeah, I guess here in Europe and and I'm sure in many places across the world, there's been a lot of discussion about how much responsibility with regards to limiting the spread of the virus should be on the government and how much should be on the individual. Do you think a lot of people will make a conscious decision not to travel for the Sinanti Har this year to not put their relatives at risk and well stay where they are right now? Um I, I think a significant portion will do and um, uh, will probably stay put wherever they are and um, and that's partly also because um, of financial reasons um, people don't really have a lot of money uh, in their pockets now to you know go back to the villages when I if I were a worker working in Kathmandu and going back to my village I would actually I would take my family it would not just be one person traveling and the travel itself is very uh, expensive. I, I'm sure the costs are even higher. Then I would buy gifts for my family members. You know, I would, all of the, the celebrations, they are uh, very expensive. So um, because of that reason, also people will not be traveling, I assume. 
and um, and yes, everybody is scared, and especially the numbers, as you see in Kathmandu, seem to be exponentially rising up, especially in the big cities. So then, um, yes, everybody is worried about their nears and dears. Um, regarding the question of personal responsibility, though, um, it's very um, hard for a poor person living in Kathmandu to decide what is the right thing to do, you know. If I have kids in Kathmandu and I'm living in a rented, a very crowded uh, rented apartment in Kathmandu, would, I, would it be safer for me to take them actually back to the village before they get sick, before we get sick, you know? Um, it's, it's very hard uh, to make the right decision, uh, especially because there is no social safety net. If I get um, sick here, um, it will probably cost just too much, uh, cost way higher, the price may be way higher, for me to you know recover especially if i you know need uh, icu care uh, intensive care unit uh, treatment um and um so wouldn't it be wiser to go to the village that may be one one concern uh, somebody may have in mind the other thing is um i, I hear a lot of uh, blaming uh, average person uh, you know by especially by the elite class and those in the government um, that uh, people are not behaving nicely. They, uh, you know, yes, part of that is true. People are not all wearing masks or wearing masks uh, on, on their chins, you know, rather than over their mouth and nose. And so, yes, the, there is that part. But I also see um, uh, people going out in the street forced to work just because they don't have uh, other means um, to support themselves or their families. So, I mean, we didn't see the government stepping up at all in terms of helping the poor people to um, there there could have been other uh, you know um, uh, opportunities to you know help there are a lot of uh, wasteful expenses um, of the government even now and uh, and people uh, economists and um, other experts have been pointing those out and they say this could have been routed to you know public benefit especially for the uh, ones uh, in the lower economic uh, income class and uh, so that has not been done and so people are kind of forced to take risks also uh, so when we talk about people crowding the buses that's because there is nothing else for them to you know travel by to go to their work and um, so uh, i mean th those are things where government could have helped you know and so it is very the right now also the people who are dying are poor people who are going hungry are the poor people um, they, they probably don't even have enough money to buy masks. Even, at least the masks could have been distributed for free. They are very, very cheap. You know, they, uh, even at least the cloth mask could be very useful also. And there's a lot of data and th those could have been distributed. So there are so many things that could have been done and those have not been done. And so it's very, um, very um, hypocritical to, you know, uh, just blame the people. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I absolutely agree. I guess this also shows that initial claims of we are all in the same boat during this pandemic and we are all facing the same crisis don't really hold anymore because essentially it is a pandemic of the poor and the talk about taking personal responsibility gets a very different meaning depending on your socioeconomic background. And um, you had already mentioned migrant workers earlier. Nepali migrant workers are not just in India, but also in a lot of Gulf countries, Malaysia, Korea, Japan, and so on. What do we know about their current situation? Have many people returned or are a lot of people still stuck abroad? Um, so I do not have the numbers 
but um, at least uh, 200 uh, Nepalese have died overseas um, already and um, there were um, hundreds of thousands of migrant workers who uh, were out of job and um, have been trying to go come back to the country for uh, months and months a big portion of them are were stranded in um, migrant workers some kind of you know congregation center where they are probably barely getting something to eat waiting for the country to pick them up and there has been a lot of inefficiency in our government's part in terms of making arrangements to bring them back first of all they were it was not clear um, whether the government really wanted to bring them back i mean at some point the government didn't really want to bring them back even the migrant workers who came to nepal's borders the, the ones returning from india they were actually just stopped there people uh, swam through swam through this uh, mahakali river which is a very very um, risky thing to do just to you know uh, get back to the country because the border checkpoints were closed and they were just stranded in uh, thousands uh, at risk of you know being exposed to the illness there and the government is likewise didn't want to bring the migrant workers from overseas because they were suspected of you know they would bring the pandemic into the country and um, of course there are ways to you know uh, make sure they are quarantined uh, they are tested and make sure that the infection can is not spread but um, there was just too much fear and um, the last um, few months uh, there have been intermittent flights to these countries uh, in uh, middle east and malaysia uh, where uh, some migrant uh, a portion of the migrant workers have been um, you know brought into the country uh, they are uh, asked to pay for their quarantine in the hotels uh, in some situations and uh, in some situations they are just allowed to just go back home uh, without uh, a formal quarantine <laughs> so it's also uh, you know a very um, fluid kind of a policy that keeps changing and uh, there are still lots of migrant workers stranded in uh, different countries uh, that we hear about in news yeah yeah i mean it is so problematic because nepal's economy is so heavily dependent on remittance from migrant workers and yeah there's so many households that receive money from relatives working abroad and that's how they secure their livelihoods in nepal so i assume that besides this medical crisis that um, nepal is facing at the moment there's also going to be a long-lasting economic crisis considering that such huge flows of incoming money suddenly don't exist anymore um I, I don't have the economics uh, training, but uh, what I know is uh, that the Internet, the Global uh, World Bank, IMF, have, uh, I think, projected our um, growth rate will be around 0.67% this coming year, which is way lower than um, the 6-7% average that we had been doing in the last um, few years. There's a report that from the World Bank that said that Nepal's uh, one third of our population is probably going to be below the um, poverty line because of this pandemic. Um, right now it's around a quarter, so it's probably going to be at least seven or eight percent of our population uh, going under poverty line because of this pandemic. There, is, there are a lot of other consequences too. Um, so as you said, um, migrant workers not being able to work, so uh, all these people uh, who uh, will be jobless and have no opportunity. So that can probably lead to other kind of social issues also. 
Um, and in terms of healthcare also, there are, apart from COVID, there are a lot of other challenges. So, for example, uh, vaccination rates uh, for uh, pediatric immunizations have gone down. The uh, birthing rate in facility, in a healthcare facility, has uh, halved, um, at least. Uh, maternal death threats and um, uh, infant mortalities are going up. There are some reports that suicide rates have gone up but um, they are more of news reports rather than um, like a formal analysis. So there, there and then um, there was a report uh, again from, um, I, I forgot the name of the organization that brought it but out, but they were saying that uh, there's a big risk of a lot of our girl, girl children not going to school forever uh, because schools have been closed for so, so long and uh, are expected to be closed for uh, another, at least four or five months. The girl children who uh, didn't get to go to school this year will probably never go back to school again. So, so there will be a um, lot of other other um, challenges. Right. Yeah. From these long-term impacts, let's shift back a little to the current moment. You were mentioning earlier that the situation is very critical in Kathmandu at the moment because most or all of the IC units are full. Um, and what are you and what are the hospitals going to do now? As in, are there already plans to expand facilities? What, what's what's the solution to this problem? Uh, there have been, you know, uh, calls from uh, different parties to, you know, try to increase our ICU ventilator capacity. Like um, our um, um, parliament's um, health um, committee just um, gave um, like instruction to the government to uh, increase the ventilator count by 10,000. <laughs> so the, the, pr the problem is that that's not possible and that's not uh, how it works, right? So you cannot increase your, especially your intensive care uh, capacity overnight. Um, uh, intensive care tr uh, treatment is not just uh, adding uh, a bed and a ventilator or a few equipment. It's also um, having uh, equipped um, uh, well-trained uh, nurses, well-trained physicians, people who, uh, in an area that is uh, probably some of the most one of the most complex areas in medicine, and uh, so and that doesn't happen overnight. We have a very very um, we have uh, just a few dozen people who are trained in critical care uh, doctors, and probably a few more dozens of nurses. Who are trained in critical care and uh, so you cannot do that overnight so and then supply chains are so disrupted it's very hard to get all the supplies even necessary drugs but um, so uh, when we talk about icu capacity and uh, ventilators those those will be the hardest to you know uh, expand uh, but uh, the more important part is uh, still uh, we need to try to decrease the number of people going to need these ventilators, decrease the number of people going to um, need hospitals, for example. And that means decrease the number of cases in the community. And uh, that is something we can still work on. We may not be able to curb the pandemic completely, but if we can at least minimize the number of cases who need uh, hospital admission, we will uh, have less strain on the hospitals. Um, and for that, uh, still we need to do tests better. We need to identify, we need to do our contact tracing, which we don't do at all. Um, so uh, just to give an example, um, for every uh, positive case, there are probably 70, 80, you know, 90 contacts uh, who may have been exposed. 
And uh, so if uh, I was just looking at data from, um, you know, Finland, there were about 170 contacts per case, per positive case that they were identifying through their public health system. Italy was identifying 37 uh, contacts, 37.5 per positive case. Zambia was identifying 9.7. India, according to a report where they did a study from uh, Andhra Pradesh and Tamil Nadu, 7.8. And in Kathmandu, we were identifying two contacts per case. So that's not how you do contact tracing, you know. And um, so but basically we're saying two contacts because there was no contact tracing done. Th these two contacts are people who uh, are in the family who say, oh, I am his contact. I want to be tested, you know. And so we're just doing so little um, of the basic things that other countries have been doing for more than 100 years. You know, contact tracing is very, very primitive public health work. And we haven't done that. We haven't done that at all. We have just completely ignored that part. So when we say um, uh, mitigation of uh, like pandemic control, we talk about testing, tracing and quarantine isolation. Testing, we were having so much problem. I talked about earlier, we were not, you know, expanding the tests at all and we're not testing the right people. We were narrowing the criteria so that we wouldn't, the government wouldn't have to test people, you know, so we missed a lot of cases. And then tracing, we didn't do at all. We haven't done at all. Even now we can do contact tracing. So if we have, um, you know, um, uh, 2000, the government is giving about 2000 or 3000 cases per day now. If we have 2000 um, health workers who uh, just have to be, you know, uh, grade 10 or grade um, like um, uh, graduates, you know, graduates of high school who can be trained to do contract tracing by phone, uh, if they get a like two, three hour training, this is not complicated. This is something any country in the world can do. Nepal can definitely do. And so if we hired like 3000 people and give them a phone and just say, hey, every day, just um, this positive case, you uh, talk to them, find out who their contacts were, whom they met, you know, whether they were, you know, wearing masks or not, who were the more uh, exposed at more risk, just identify those people, call those people and ask them to, you know, go for testing, do quarantine. You know, and then the government has to set up a quarantine facility, isolation facility. That is not um, uh, rocket science. Isolation, quarantine is just, you know, you cohort um, people who have a positive diagnosis, right? You just put them in a place where it's they are safely um, monitored and uh, where they are not at risk of exposing people in the community. Right now, the uh, disease is spreading because um, one positive case is in the family and then they are all living in a crowded space. And so everybody else is exposed. They cannot really isolate in a single room with a single, you know, um, toilet with an attached bathroom. We don't have that in Nepal. So the government has to provide these isolation facilities. However, there is not one isolation center um, for, uh, arranged by our uh, Kathmandu municipality, for example. So we're not doing those basic things, the contact tracing, the quarantine, the isolation. And so that's why the transmission is unchecked. Uh, the chain of transmission is not broken. And that's why we, the numbers uh, of people who need ventilators, who need ICU is going up. So talking about, you know, increasing ventilator, the people are doing the government, even the government is talking about, you know, uh, just talking, but talking about doing, um, increasing our ventilator capacity, but that's the upside down approach. You know, we should actually, you know, go from bottom up. We should try to um, do the basics of public healthcare and the numbers will go down. Uh, the challenges to our healthcare system will go down too.
yeah, you've basically already answered the last question that I was going to ask you um, from a medical expert point of view, what should be the next steps to be taken to control this outbreak? Besides focusing on contract tracing, as you just mentioned, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Um, the other things, I mean, that we have talked about a lot uh, is like uh, giving the basic treatments, uh, making them available, like oxygen, for example. Even now, you, you know, we don't have enough oxygen plants in the country. Um, we don't have enough um, places in the country where, you know, they can, people can get oxygens. Even starting to build an oxygen plant now, it can be done within a few weeks, you know, and this pandemic is going to go on for months, uh, probably th through the winter because uh, the winter season is coming right after the holidays. And uh, so it's probably just going to uh, go up and up until um, the winter has passed. So uh, there is still a lot of time. So um, the government can still, you know, uh, focus on these uh, basic things, uh, giving oxygen, um, uh, doing the basic infection prevention practices in the hospitals, uh, making sure that they are there so health workers are not exposed or health, uh, health workers do not get sick. Healthcare workers are available in those hospitals to treat the sick people. Um, so um, there's a long list, but <laughs> in summary, that's what we can probably do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, thanks for this very comprehensive answer. Uh, would you like to add anything else? Um, so um, Tom Frieden, um, who is a um, director of uh, ex-director of the CDC in the United States, a well-known um, uh, epidemiologist, said somewhere um, that uh, there are three kinds of three levels of failure in a, when a country fails facing this pandemic. These are the technical, the operational and uh, political. The technical is where you don't have enough tests capacity. You don't have the technical expertise of the, you know, the doctors, the nurses, the critical care capacity. Um, you don't have the equipment or the technology, you know, the molecular biology, um, uh, you know, sciences uh, that other countries have. And yes, we are um, behind uh, compared to other countries there, obviously. And there are limitations, so we can't really just blame the government on that. And then the next level is operational, right? Um, so we had uh, quarantines, uh, facilities in um, uh, uh, near the border checkpoints in different parts of the country for the migrating workers from India. Uh, th those quarantine facilities were so ill-managed uh, that uh, they actually became uh, the hubs of infection. And so people actually got infected when they got there. And then they actually went back to the villages because they were not tested before they left those quarantine centers. And they went to the villages and then they spread the infection throughout those um, uh, regions. And um, so uh, there are a lot of operational uh, failures here. But I think the biggest failure is the political failure. The political, because we actually had, had a very, very clear opportunity to actually outshine all uh, the other South Asian nations. We, the pandemic came the, almost the, uh, after every other country here. Uh, yes, we had our first case very early, but then um, uh, we had very few cases for a few months. and. Um, we could have, uh, we had so much time to learn from other countries' experience, uh, so much time to, you know, um, get our, um, um, fix our systems, uh, get our contact tracing system ready, get our, you know, testing capacity to be um, ready for the um, challenges and get our healthcare system, our hospitals um, uh, ready. 
And um, and the main reason we failed is because of the lack of imagination, because of the lack of the, the distrust of science and distrust of expertise. And because these uh, people in the government, they um, didn't really care what the experts said, but they really cared about um, what people around them said, or even the experts they picked were people who belonged to their party, you know, people uh, who were, uh, you know, just um, doing um, lip service to the government. And so because of all that, uh, because of our failure to respect science, because of the lack of vision and uh, lack, and also the other problem is uh, lack of accountability. Even after so many failures, nobody has been fired. Nobody has been uh, even uh, transferred out of their current position to another position so that somebody better can come and do the work. So, um, and, and the uh, lack of transparency. And in the middle of all that, we had big crisis regarding the purchase of equipments and all that. And there was so much talk of corruption and that is uh, being investigated. So, uh, so it's a big political failure and failure of governance um, more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I think this was an extremely nuanced analysis of um, not just the health situation in Nepal, but um, also the political and economic one. Um, yeah, I think I would leave it at that. This was extremely insightful. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks for making so much time. And yeah, I wish you all the best with your job. And um, I hope that you can you can manage. Yeah, we hope uh, we'll come out of this um, and talk about it again later. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Mm -hmm.